You're listening to the Sound Girls podcast. This episode is part of an ongoing series with the Living History Project. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of interviews with audio industry veterans. The project seeks to highlight the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. Interviews are conducted by Soundgirls members with guidance from experienced interviewers in the audio industry. The oral history interviews are typically unedited and will be archived in their original form. The Soundgirls podcast is sponsored by QSC. Welcome everyone to the Soundgirls Living History project. I am Hasmin Jolito and I have the absolute pleasure of being here with a very, very important and special person for me, Susan Chani. How are you, Susan? I'm so happy to be here speaking with you and I very much admire and applaud the work that you're doing to present the histories of women in this industry. Thank you. Could I call you Jasmine or Hasmine? Which is better? Mm, well, Hasmine. I think that you you should decide what Hasmine is the proper okay. pronunciation. I can yes. I can say that Hasmine Hasmine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect. Good. Thank you. So, Susan, um, for those out there who might not know you, how would you? describe yourself and what you do. I am an acknowledged pioneer in electronic music and I have worked as a recording artist. I have maybe 20 albums released uh, that cover a wide range of expression from pure electronic all the way to orchestra and piano. Mm -hmm. I'm a classically trained musician with a master's degree in music composition. I worked for about 20 years in New York City with a music production company that became the number one go-to music house for high-tech music. It was called Johnny Musica. And I worked for all the Fortune 500 companies designing sound, sound logos and commercials for Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, General Electric, Atari. Also, I am known for having uh, designed the sound for a groundbreaking pinball machine called Xenon. So that was one of the first, uh, that was the first uh, pinball game that used a female voice. And uh, so I've always had my hand in the edge, the front edge of using technology. Now my career, I'm much older now, but I continue to work because I love it. And my career involves running around the world when I can. Uh, <laughs> and uh performing solo concerts with a Buchla, B-U-C-H-L-A, Buchla Electronic Music System. This is something that I played in the 70s, and I'm out playing it again. It's an analog modular music system. 
Wow, so many amazing and inspiring and I'd say groundbreaking things. Uh, it's really fascinating. And one thing that um, impresses me a lot and inspires me a lot is that you've had such a prolific and diverse career. And I was wondering, do you have some sort of advice for people who as well pursue a multi-layered professional profile? In my day, the way to get into the industry was through the ground floor. Mm -hmm. You know, you take on a job that, you know, maybe you were an assistant in a recording studio. Mm -hmm. But if you have an opportunity to get on the inside of any, you know, area in the industry, that's a good starting place. And the idea is to keep your eyes and ears open and absorb everything you can all the time, like a sponge. So you learn kind of in the in the situation. You can also, you know, when I was young, there were no schools to study any of this. There were no schools for electronic music or for doing anything. Uh, I know it's different today that you can get a degree and, and that's all wonderful. I don't know what it's like actually because my, my degree was in traditional music and that certainly did help me when I went to work in the industry, but I was doing something very different. I was doing electronic music. And what is that? Well, that's a different discussion. Um, but uh, I think it's to, you know, find your entry point, keep your eyes and ears open, learn everything you can from the inside. Also, you know, study, but realize that any, any work that you do is with human contact. You know, I, I think that your relationship with the people you're working with, that professional relationship, is something you need to cultivate as well. Be confident because that's why people want to work with you because you, you have something to say and you, you have to believe in yourself, you know, before anybody else is going to believe in you. <laughs> but um, but it's always good to get reinforcement, you know, from outside. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, be, feel your core sense of worth and your, you know, your ambition that you want to do something. Wow. That definitely is a very important yes. Um, uh, how was that for you? Did you have um, any particular moment that was when you first felt that confidence that then propelled you to your career and to New York? Or how was that? Um, you know, I, I don't know how to express this exactly. I, you know, I was always in love with music. Mm -hmm. So when I was little, I would play the piano for hours and hours a day. 
And one day when I was in grade school, I was standing out in the playground Mm -hmm. and out of nowhere, I got this kind of message, this sense that something, I, I can't even explain it, but I knew at that moment, just like a spark out of no place that I had something to say Mm-hmm. and that it was in music but i didn't know how it was going to come out i didn't know what i had to say i knew i had something to say and so you know the beauty of this uh field is that there is no one path there are so many approaches and mine was a very, you know, it was a unique path. Mm -hmm. Who could have guessed? There was nobody that said, oh, you're going to be an electronic music pioneer. I was like, what's that? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) in fact, you know, all the first years that I was working, nobody understood what I was doing. It was very lonely Mm -hmm. because I wanted people to understand, but they didn't. My audience said, well, where is the sound coming from? What is that? But I was motivated by, in some senses, hunger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Technology, you know, it it was a circle. I was in love with technology. Technology was expensive, very Mm -hmm. expensive back then. It's not like today. Yes. Magnitudes of difference to have, you know, instead of, you know, it was like buying a car or a house, you know. Mm-hmm. And in order to get the money to feed my desire, I had to work. Yes. And so it was a circle. I used those, you know, I, I earned some money. I uh, bought more equipment. The equipment helped me to earn more money. And eventually I... You know, I, I went to Los Angeles and worked for a while in the film industry. And I was kind of interesting because uh, nobody had ever seen a bukla. Mm-hmm. But I didn't like L.A., uh, even though it had a good film industry, because it didn't have a good art scene. Okay. So I think even in our ambitions, you know, we need to make money. And I always say I worked as an artist while making money. But then I also had a side to me, which was pure art, mm-hmm. where I played with dancers and played in museums and cultivated, you know, a free, a freedom in my expression. And that led me to New York. Mm-hmm. So I went to New York because the art scene was better. Okay. But... So was the commercial scene, and I ended up, you know, making a huge, uh, you know, uh, footprint mm-hmm. in the commercial music business. Yes, there's <clears throat> something that I've read you you mentioned in some previous interview about how, uh, yes, the sound of of your music, well, your sound was very new and almost alien for most people but um people working on advertising sort of always want to be there 
like at the very edge of everything. Exactly. Uh, yes. So they, they they were looking for something new, whereas mm -hmm. the record companies were not looking for anything new. They wanted the same hit that they'd already mm -hmm. had. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that was a discovery, you know, who, who would have, I didn't even know there was advertising music. It wasn't <laughs> in my consciousness. It's just that when you meet up against a wall, mm -hmm. my wall was hunger. Yes. I, one day I woke up and I said, where is the money? <laughs> where I need, I need money to live. And Somebody said, well, you know, you, there's a book. I didn't even know this. There was a big book called The, the Red Book. Mm -hmm. And it had a list. It was like a phone book of all the advertising agencies. Uh -huh. And I got hold of this book. And I said to myself, well, I'm going to start at the top. Why should I start at the bottom? <laughs> I, I'm going to pick the 20 top music agencies, advertising agencies. Mm -hmm. And I made a list of the top 20. J. Walter Thompson, uh, McCann Erickson, Young and Rubicam, you know, these big, big advertising companies. And I started knocking on the doors. I did not know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the structure of the companies. Who do I call? Do I call the president? Do I call? Some of them had music directors. Mm -hmm. And so I could call the music director. And I made a calendar. And the calendar had the 20 agencies. And every mm -hmm. time I called one, I'd make a note in the calendar. And they always said, call in two weeks. Okay. And so I would call... <laughs> Two weeks later, I would call, I say, hello, this is Suzanne Chani, and uh, I'm a composer, and I have a wonderful electronic music uh, instrument, and I'd like to show you what I can do. And they'd say, well, nobody's here right now. Call call in two weeks. Oh, and no. This one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this went on and on and on, and finally... At the biggest agency, I think J. Walter Thompson was the biggest, and this was McCann Erickson. And uh, I got an appointment. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is amazing. So, you know, on the day of my appointment, I get all dressed up. I think I had one pair of pants to my name. <laughs> I, I didn't even have, you know, a clothes. And I went up to the agency and I said, um, I'm here for my appointment. And the woman said, oh, I'm sorry. He's not here today. No. And I said, oh. And I, I rescheduled the appointment. And then I came back again and she said, I'm sorry. He's not here. And I said, oh, now I'm, you know, I'm a little worried. The third time this happened. Oh. I said, where is he? <laughs> he has an appointment with me. <laughs> he has an appointment with me. You know this story. Do you know this story? 
I do, but but yeah, he's, yeah. He's, so he's so anyway, I said, "Where is he?" She said, "Well, he's at this recording studio." And I said, "Well, where is mm -hmm. that?" And she told me, you know, it was in Times Square. And I went, and uh, I I walked into the studio, and the person there said, "Well," I said, "Where is Billy Davis?" And he said, "Well, he's in session, and you can't go in." And I said, he had an appointment with me. And I went over to the door and I opened it and I walked in. Mm -hmm. And there I was in the, I was in the, uh, the control room, you know, and they were working. And he was just completely shocked that somebody had come into this room during a session. And that was, you know, how I got my big break. So I would say... There, there have been times in my life when I didn't push through, when I did not go all the way, when mm -hmm. I got really close and then I gave up. And in retrospect, I saw, you know, that if I had just gone forward one more step, I would have gotten in. Mm -hmm. So... You know, when to go forward, when to stop. Uh, when your little voice tells you to give up, mm -hmm. don't listen to it. Good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a simple thing because you will, you will regret it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we have all this energy, but sometimes our energy only lets us go so far. And what we need is that tiny little bit more. I have so, you know, I have so many stories like this. Stories of uh, well, determination. Termin and... like, you know, when I went to work for Don Buchla. Mm -hmm. Tell us, please. So Don Buchla is, uh, he is the designer of the electronic music instrument that I'm using today. And this was in 1969, uh, 70. I went to 1970. I went to work for him when I finished graduate school. Mm -hmm. I had fallen in love with this concept of electronic music, and I knew his instrument because I there was one at the Electronic Music Center at Mills College. So it was called the uh, San Francisco Tape Music Center. And it was the first public access uh, place in the country okay. for being able to get your hands on these new instruments. And the very first mm -hmm. bukla was there. So I knew I wanted to play the bukla and I went to work for him. Mm -hmm. And day one, at the end of the day, I was fired. Why were you fired? I was fired because what was my job? My job was to look at schematics mm -hmm. and then to choose the parts, you know, the resistors and the capacitors and the little electronic parts and stuff the circuit board. So you put mm -hmm. these things into the board according to a diagram yes. and then you soldered those parts in. So you turned the board over, you took a soldering iron and some solder, and you held the solder and heated it until the connection was made, until the solder melted. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Now, at the end of the day, they would test the boards, and they found what's called a cold soldering joint, which meant that the solder melted, but it wasn't hot enough. And so the connection wasn't made. And Dawn said, it must be the new girl. She's fired. Oh, no. Yeah. And I said, wait a minute. How do you know that it was that it was me? That's not fair. It could have been anybody that did that cold soldering joint. And of course, it probably was me. But <laughs> anyway. But he was giving you only 24 hours to learn how to solder, right? Right. <laughs> That's a very exigent boss. <laughs> so anyway, so I just came back the next day. I said, I said, you can't fire me. Mm-hmm. And I came back the next day and I stayed. So sometimes, you know, if we let our, our vision, you know, be uninterrupted. So if you really, if you really, really want something, you go for it. If you really don't care, then, you you know, it's not going to work, right? So you have to find what it is you really care about. Because caring and wanting that is going to give you the, the focus and the commitment to go forward and make, you have to carve your own path Mm -hmm. and that's fun you know because every individual is unique you can be inspired by other people because of you know that the accomplishment but your own path is your own you make it yes yeah Definitely. And um, while working with Dom Bukla, <clears throat> the pieces that you were putting together, uh, were those going to be part of new Buklas? Yes. So in those days, the Bukla, he had just designed the Bukla 200. Mm-hmm. The one I had seen at the Tape Music Center was the Bukla 100. The Bukla 200, to this day, I think, is the pinnacle of Don Bukla's design. Mm-hmm. And that's a long story to discuss. But uh, so the, the Bukla 200, in those days, individuals didn't really, mm-hmm. didn't own them. We were making systems for Cal Arts, California Institute of the Arts, we made one for uh, a studio in Norway. And, you know, either very, very wealthy people, like the king of Siam or something, you know, were buying these, or they were for schools and institutions. Okay. So if you were working on these uh, systems that were then the, the 200s, like the one you had, it means that you were sort of part of the construction process of your instrument, meaning that you were sort of a luthier of your instrument, right? 
You know, as a matter of fact, uh, I did feel, you know, in my time with Bukla, I learned something important from him. Mm-hmm. That in this technology, I th- I think that the field of music technology is fundamentally collaborative. You mm-hmm. have the engineer who's designing the, you know, mechanism, the making it work, and you have the artist who is using that. Mm-hmm. And that it translates, as Dawn taught me, between the inside of the module and the outside. So I could design the outside of the module. I would okay. say, I want this knob here. I want this knob to do that. I want to be able to control this and that. And then Dawn could design the inside to make that work. So to this day, I'm a firm believer, you know, we had uh, an exploratory group then called Experiments in Art and Technology, EAT. Uh And it was started or fostered by uh, Oppenheimer, who, you know, had been instrumental in designing the atomic bomb and to give back, you know, to make technology a more forgiving thing and not just destructive. uh, He started this group where he brought together engineers and artists. And to this day, that mingling and fertilization Mm -hmm. of those two domains is is hugely fertile right it's it's how things go if you develop things just purely technologically without reference to the person on the other side you know Mm -hmm. who's using it you're going to get in trouble and you know just in my own world now um i see that happening even today i see it happening in my computer uh, and, uh, you know, that's another, that's a different conversation. But I think if you're going to be designing, uh, you you need to collaborate. Whatever it is, if even if it's a Tesla car, you know, somebody's going to be driving that car. Mm-hmm. Yes. My sister, my sister bought a Tesla. She's out driving and all of a sudden it starts to rain. Uh-huh. And she doesn't know how to turn on the windshield wipers. Oh, no. So she pulls over to the side of the road, and they have a number you can call in an emergency. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, well, for heaven's sakes, why don't you just have something in the car that says, hey, Siri, how do I turn on the windshield wipers? <laughs> you know, <Yes>. something, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, Hi Siri. <laughs> she she heard me. Oh. <laughs> I have Alexa wow. and Siri. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> you have all of them. <laughs> They're always listening too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um 
I definitely uh, firmly believe in what you just said that working collaboratively with people from different disciplines is always something that brings a lot of richness and that in turn ends in a much more enjoyable thing, whatever that is. And I've been wondering because, well, I'm I'm a game developer, so this is especially interesting for me. Oh, um, excellent. How was this like when you were working on this revolutionary pinball machine? Uh, you were working with engineers, right? And with maybe even sort of game designers. Yes. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, when they invited me to do that, I was kind of, you know, I had become very well known in New York uh, and, and, you know, beyond uh, for my sound design. I had a lot of press and a lot of television interviews and, you know, media exposure. And so when Bally Pinball called me, I, I thought, well, okay, this is interesting. I don't really know anything about pinball other than that maybe I tried it a couple of times. But I I never say no, right? Because even if I don't know what I'm doing, it's like I love the possibility of doing something I don't know. You know, it's like, yes. So I remember I went to Chicago, their headquarters, and I met all the people who were in that point designing the machine. So they had blueprints mm -hmm. and they had the game design and they had all of this like structure of, uh, I forget what they even called it. You probably know, you know, uh, the rewards and, okay. uh, you know, the levels of play. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. What is that called? The well, I'm assuming that it's the progression of the game and the difficulty curve and the learning curve, all yes. of that entangled together. Yes. And they wanted the sound, of course, to reflect all of the, you know, that, that uh, structure. And uh, so the art, you know, I was a little bit shy in the art department because I couldn't really appreciate <laughs> <laughs> you know, the art. <laughs> I just thought, is this art? To me, up to that time, art, you know, was something in a museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sister was an artist. And I thought of that as I reserved the word art for that sacred, you know, category of mm -hmm. historic, you know, expression. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when I see art department and I go in and I see you know a woman's rear end you know <laughs> in the middle of the <laughs> drawing <laughs> okay okay uh but he was a really you know they had an excellent and I now I can't remember off the top of my head his name uh but anyway it was really fun I I learned, you know, the inside out of the game and uh, designed the sound so that it, for me, it was a composition 
that could be performed by the player. So it made musical sense. You know, this the music actually evolved musically mm-hmm. while the game was played. Yes. Oh, that that you are saying is actually something that uh, we talk a lot uh, when when we talk about game audio, because it's always sort of like that, because the player is ultimately sort of the orchestra director or the performing who is deciding which sounds will sound together and live together. And it's it's just so fascinating to me hearing you talk about that and knowing that you had that same uh, perception. Yes, I think technology is misleading in ways because um, there's some, there are two departments. One is conceptual, the idea. And then the other thing is the practicality of how that idea is uh, allowed to manifest. Technology, we know, always changes. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about being in technology. You wake up and, and then there's a new IC or there's a new integrated circuit. Or um, let's see, when Don Buchla was working, there was a new, uh, what was it? Um, there was a an early part that had just come into being in the 60s and that made all the difference. Okay, so that is not what it's about. That is the um, delivery system. Mm-hmm. But the ideas are uh, more universal and how you deliver them can change. But the ideas are valid as, you know, the concepts are valid and they they go way back. Uh, mm-hmm. They're human. They're yes. they're more connected to. You know, we have we changed that much. We have I, hands. No, mm-hmm. I mean we're as an interface. We have hands. We have voices. We have eyes. We you know our bodies are pretty much the same mm-hmm. as they've been. So so yes, technology has has uh, evolved. So, you know, it's, uh, that's why right now I'm really happy because the kids, Mm -hmm. probably you too, you know, stop this headlong march of technology forward saying, well, technology goes forward and it always gets better and just go forward. And the kids woke up one day and they said, wait a minute. My hand is sore. I I don't want to just hold a mouse and look mm-hmm. at menus and be diverted from my idea by going into this, you know, endless menu. Mm-hmm. And they said, I want to touch things. Yes. I, I just want to interact live. And we were doing that in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So they went back. Yes. And that's when you came back to the book. Yes, right? that's when I came. There I was. <laughs> there I was. <laughs> to watch the rest of the episode, you can go to the Sound Girls YouTube page or to soundgirls.org. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast, sponsored by QSC.
Join us next week on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information, check out our website at soundgirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org.